We're getting into deciding time now. You know, we're in October. The summer was dating time. Everyone likes to date in the summer. That's good. Summer was dating time. Now it's deciding time. From WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio, it's the Christie Tracker. First thing I'm going to do is look for every Obama bureaucrat I can find as president and fire them. In the country, nobody cares who the Speaker of the House is going to be. They don't care. It's never been said, oh, that Christie, he's too subtle. I'm David First. Warnings from the Granite State about Russia and the evil empire. Yes, Christie had time to trash talk Putin and the Yankees while campaigning and attending Mets playoffs games this past week. And later we'll be joined by Scott Conroy with the Huffington Post in New Hampshire with a wrap-up on Christie's latest visit to the state. First, though... Governor Christie's Bruce Springsteen fandom has been well-documented. Might be the biggest Springsteen fan I know. You love Bruce Springsteen. I do. I do. I have never fallen asleep during a Bruce Springsteen show. I will never fall asleep during a Bruce Springsteen show. You just saw him last night. Yes, in Philly. And what number show is this? And I'm not lying. This is not- it, it, was, it was my 130th show last night. When I was singing to Out in the Street... Thankfully, no one took pictures of that. When I was contorting myself during Because the Night, no one took pictures of that. We hugged. He told me it's official. We're friends. So um, there was a lot of weeping because of the hug. What can you do? Could you do a little Thunder Road or something? Have it be in you? Yeah, I'll do it with you. Right, let's do it. Come on, Yes, the governor singing a duet with Jimmy Fallon. Not the only time he sang along with the Bruce songs on the air, so we know he's a huge Bruce fan. But some recently discovered message board postings from the late 90s shed some more light on just how hardcore he gets. Matt Katz covers Governor Christie for WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio, and he recently uncovered some of these old postings by the governor that appeared on Bruce Springsteen message boards. Matt, welcome back. Thanks, David. And uh, interspersed throughout our discussion, we're going to hear readings of these old posts. But tell us about the messages. These were written to the old Lucky Town mailing list, uh, a list run by Bruce fans who liked to trade tapes of shows and talk about set lists. Uh, When did he write these? He wrote these during the brief period in which he was not in public life over the last 20 years. So this was... 1999, 2000, it was between the time he was an elected official in Morris County, a Morris County freeholder, and the time he was named by President Bush to be U.S. attorney. I found these several months ago online. They were connected to an old email address of the governor's, and these old message boards had been archived. And about the same time, Matt Friedman from Politico found them and did a story about them. I found them so fascinating because they were so sort of uh, revealing about, you know, his true self. They were very earnest. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating to see these postings. I mean, we hear a a lot of personal stories from from this guy, but still, this is not the governor that we're used to hearing from a podium. No, this, this is a total geek, geeking out with other geeks about this Cool, Uh, Bruce is awesome, but, you know, still kind of geeky obsession. Saturday, March 20th, 1999. 
I'm writing the morning after last night's spectacular show on the boardwalk. Bruce and the band came on at 7.30 p.m. to a rousing rendition of Promised Land. They looked so excited and happy. The crowd was electric, and the band looked like they were having more fun than anyone in the place. It's kind of endearing it, it, because it shows like a, you know, a real person in there. And it also reveals something that has come up later in his career. And that's this slightly excessive preoccupation with the famous. Part of what he loves about Bruce that I think was revealing from these posts is not just the music. I think that's the, the dominant thing. But he's also taken with the fame. And, and you see that in a couple of messages he writes about having run into Bruce. Friday, January 21st, 2000. Subject, brush with Bruce at 30,000 feet. We board the 11 a.m. Northwest flight back to New Jersey the day after the show. My wife and I are sitting in the first row of first class and getting our books out of our bags and putting the luggage away in the overheads. From behind me, I hear a voice say, I think I'm sitting right back here. I knew immediately it was Bruce. We've seen this preoccupation with fame come up time and time again um, when he's, you know, really cultivated famous friendships, when he's become friends with the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones, and, and taken free trips to Cowboys games and gotten into a little bit of hot water. It also indicates another thing that we've seen later, and that's how he has said he likes to squeeze all the juice out of the orange when it comes to life or the governorship. And that means, you know, when the King of Jordan invites you to stay at his palaces for a weekend with your family and, and covers the $30,000 bill for the hotels and the, and the stay and you get a free plane ride there, the governor does it and brings along his family. So when there was a uh, charity auction for Springsteen tickets, front row, him and his brother bid $11,000 plus. Sunday, November 7th, 1999. My brother and I were the winners of those ticks, and despite the, quote, staggering price, we had a night we will never forget. We wouldn't trade it for the world, and it went to a wonderful cause. Chris. And he's careful to mention that he paid that amount in the posting. He put the exact amount in the posting. He sure did. Chris C. and Mendham, as he was known on the message board, you see him going to uh, concerts in Chicago. You see him going to concerts all over the place. His family was growing, but Springsteen was the hobby. Without, you know, politics distracting him at the time, he really kind of um, turned toward Bruce, it seems. Left to his own devices, this is what he's going to do with his time. I mean, it's interesting to see him writing in the voice of such a fan. And in many ways, these sound like almost any postings you might read. Friday, April 2nd, 1999. Could someone please let me know if there's a tree forming for the Asbury Park concerts? I would be interested in participating. And since I do not yet have the requisite equipment... I would gladly trade with blanks. If anyone's interested, please email me privately. Thanks, LTDers. Chris C. The set list? Promised Land, Two Hearts, Darkness, Darlington County, Mansion on the Hill, Great Duets with Patty, The River, Slower Country Version, Youngstown. I don't know if he's writing notes with his, and I don't know if he still does that, but he was clearly, you know, keeping a set list. An amazing show. I cannot wait till summer. Chris C. I imagine it wasn't in his head. I imagine he was sitting there, um, you know, writing with a, with a pen and a pad. Come on, Matt, a real Bruce fan isn't going to forget. And he's a real Bruce fan. I mean, he talks about how he was 12 years old. It was August 1975, and he 
heard Born to Run, the iconic Bruce album, for the first time. He says, it came bursting into my summer vacation. He said it gave voice to suburban kids like me who were filled with dreams and doubts. And then you can just kind of imagine Springsteen being the soundtrack for this 1970s Jersey life that Christie had. Driving around in his Camaro, going to seaside heights uh, on summer vacations with his family and with his friends. Then his favorite song is Thunder Road. And I've always thought this one lyric in Thunder Road was so Christie-esque. Now I'm no hero, that's understood. All the redemption I can offer, girl, is beneath this dirty hood. This sort of, um, you know, rusty messenger, this, uh, you know, imperfect-looking messenger giving it all and trying to, you know, save the American people as best as he can kind of fits with the persona that the governor has tried to uh, push across. You know, with all of that background, just imagining what was going through his mind when uh, Jimmy Fallon sang that duet with Bruce Springsteen when they were really sticking it to him over uh, the Bridgegate scandal. I'm stuck in Governor Chris Christie's fault, New Jersey traffic Yeah, well, he couldn't watch that. I mean, they, that's how rough it was for him. He feels like Bruce is an arbiter and a gauge of what is really Jersey or not. And by Bruce going after him on national TV, sort of cut to a little bit to the core of the governor's own Jerseyness, and must have been very upsetting. There's this moment in 2008 when John Corzon is governor and Christie is U.S. attorney and Bruce played this benefit concert to raise money for the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. And for this small, intimate audience, 1,500 people, the boss played Born to Run from start to finish. I mean, the governor's seen more than 130 shows. This is the best show he had ever seen. And during the encore, he looks over, and Corzine, who's governor at the time, is in the front row, and he got up to leave. Christy remembers seeing him look at his watch, and he remembers what song he left to. He left during Raise Your Hand. I see some people that ain't up back there. You think this is a free ride? He said Bruce was on the top of the piano screaming, and it just struck him that if there wasn't an emergency in the state, there was no reason how you possibly leave a Springsteen show when he's doing Born to Run from start to finish. And he ended up looking into it later to confirm that there was indeed no emergency. I'd like to think that this is what made him realize he needed to run against Scorzine the next year. For Christie, this was just the last straw. It, it, was, it had to have been the last straw. Even if Bruce completely disagrees with Governor Christie's politics. Yeah, I know. It's, it's amazing. You know, I've been in, I've interviewed the governor in his office and he's playing Springsteen, always. I, I think every time I've been in there for an interview, he's had Springsteen on. And, and in like uncomfortably loudly, 
like almost too loud if you're, you know, having a, a, a work meeting. You know, what that guy's singing about while Christie is talking to me or whatever reporter about conservative politics, they seem to conflict. I always imagine that Christie has it in his mind uh, that, you know, Bruce cares a lot. His passion is in the right place, but he's just got it wrong when it comes to what to do about it. It's exactly what he thinks. He thinks he's the personification of the American dream. He thinks he was a kid from Freehold, New Jersey, whose father had nothing and did a lot of hard work. And his mother was working class. And he told uh, The Atlantic a few years ago that um, what's funny is that Bruce's progression is what Republicans believe can actually happen, that they can, you know, achieve the American dream and, 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 and move up the economic ladder. Hard work, talent, ambition, that's what Republicans believe. Of course, there was that uh, temporary reconciliation during Sandy when, among other things, President Obama had uh, Bruce calling from Air Force One. And it's the day before Election Day on Obama's re-election. For the last year, Christie had been campaigning against Obama as a guy who can't find the light switch of leadership in the Oval Office. All of a sudden, Obama's calling Christie. They had been talking every day because of Sandy. But this time, he's calling because he's got a special guest on Air Force One who's going around campaigning with him for the last 24 hours before the election. And Obama says to Christie on the phone, you know, in a crisis like we're going through, you know, the only thing that's better than one guy from Jersey? And Christie says, no, what? Two guys from Jersey. And Obama, the president of the United States, who Christie has been campaigning against as the enemy puts Bruce Springsteen on speakerphone from Air Force One. And Springsteen says, hey, man, you know, when the times get tough, they call the guys from Jersey. And all of the uh, conspiracy theorists who talk about uh, the quote-unquote Obama-Christie hug in the wake of Sandy and what that may or may or not have done to the election, to uh, Mitt Romney's chances in the last presidential election, could easily look at this moment and say, hey, Obama and, and Bruce, they, they, they threw Bruce out there as bait to just get Christie uh, hypnotized for a week or two into uh, this Obama love. Right? I mean, they, they never talk about how, like, Obama was doing Christie the ultimate... The, the, I mean, it's pretty much the coolest thing in the world. Imagine your favorite rock star ever is calling you from Air Force One with the President of the United States. It's an incredible experience. Well, I gotta say, uh, I feel a little dirty. I feel like we're digging through old diary entries. I mean, you should see my old requests, uh, you know, to, to trade tapes of uh, Robin Hitchcock and Warren Zevon. This is, it, it's embarrassing. <laughs> my, my, uh, I was on Billy Joel message boards back in the day. So, yeah. I guess I justified in my mind by thinking that, you know, we only have one email that the governor has sent since he has been in office. So at least we have some old uh, Bruce message board postings to uh, peruse. <laughs> That's, I had never, I guess I never thought about it that way. That's hilarious. We have far more emails about Bruce Springsteen from Chris Christie than we do emails about anything to do with New Jersey government or the people's business. So, hey, take what we can get, I guess. Matt Katz covers Governor Christie for WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio. Thanks again, Matt. Thanks, David.
This is the Christie Tracker Podcast. I'm David First. Governor Christie was back in the state with the country's first primary last week. He held more town hall meetings, and we saw some polls suggest that he may be starting to gain some traction in the state. We're joined now by Scott Conroy, senior political reporter with The Huffington Post, who is in New Hampshire. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me, David. Scott, was there a theme to this visit? I mean, one minute we hear him praising the art of compromise. This is the same system we've had for a long time that can work, and it can work. But you have to understand that compromise is not capitulation. The next, he's claiming he's going to shoot down Russian planes in Syria. We have to do whatever it is we need to do to make sure Putin understands that putting the old band back together is not an option. And uh, while he was up there, he even found the time for some baseball trash talk, uh, dissing a Yankees fan who uh, walked out of a town hall meeting. Listen, everybody, when a Yankee fan leaves the room, you know what that is. Addition by subtraction. (laughs) What do you take away from this trip? There's not really a theme per se. I mean, he wants to get in front of as many voters here in New Hampshire as possible. And by that, I mean, you know, literally 100 people or so at a time in these town halls. That's sort of the method that John McCain made famous in in 2000 and 2008 when he came from behind in both of those races, just really by working harder and doing um, a more effective job in those town hall meetings than any other candidate. You know, McCain had some unique advantages that Christie doesn't have. But I will say that Christie is the best in that format still to this day. I mean, I think he is at least as good as McCain was, really, when it comes to just that one-on-one interaction, small settings. He really does have kind of a unique ability to connect with people. Will that be enough? I don't know. I mean, he is still far behind in the polls, uh, even here in New Hampshire. But that's a reason why I would not count him out, especially here. It's just just he's better at that format than anyone in the race. He's so effective in that format. But let's talk about what we heard him say over the weekend. Speaking on Fox News uh, on Monday, He tells uh, Martha McCallum he was prepared to establish and enforce a no-fly zone in Syria. And you call Putin and you say to him, listen, we're enforcing a no-fly zone, and that means we're enforcing against everyone, and that includes you. So don't test me. And then he flies through your territory. And then you take him down. You shoot him down. Yes, you do. You know, World War III is still a fairly unappealing concept for most people. How is this going over with potential voters? Well, you know, this year... Foreign policy is often the question that comes up first in Q&A. It's often something that people really seem to care deeply about. There is this divide in the Republican Party on whether you know the United States should take a more aggressive role in the world, which you're seeing from Christie wholeheartedly. And then there's the other wing of the Republican primary voters that is basically the opposite of that, and that's kind of the non-interventionist streak. With everything that's going on in Syria and with ISIS and people are seeing that kind of stuff on the news every night, I do think that the Christie, you know, kind of hard mind interventionist streak has really actually become more prevalent in, in the base. And so it's tough. I don't think there's a huge appetite to, you know, go to another war over Syria, but by the same token, You do see on the ground um, the tide sort of turning among Republicans saying, you know, like, Obama is weak. We need to reassert ourselves in the world. So I think 
in some ways, Christie is taking advantage of that sentiment. And not just going to war with Syria, though, but uh, really we're talking about going to war with Russia with statements like that. I don't think anyone wants to go to war with Russia. <laughs> but, um, he's definitely been, I would say, the most bellicose Republican. I'm trying to think if, if there's anyone else in the race that he loves going after Rand Paul. I've heard him in New Hampshire talk about, well, you know, these conversations about civil liberties are great, but you can't really have them if you're lying in a coffin or something like that. Pretty, pretty stark language. So he is definitely trying to, you know, carve out that niche for himself. Well, at another event in New Hampshire, he, he praises the art of compromise. I got pension and benefit reform sponsored by the Democratic Senate president, who is the president of the Iron Workers local. Okay, that's called compromise. Compromise can be good seems like a message guaranteed to turn off uh, the conservative voters that uh, Christie has been so eager to woo during the primary. But, you know, with all the chaos surrounding the House uh, speaker position on display, is it now safer for Christie to say things like this, you know, to say that compromise is not capitulation in New Hampshire? I just think it's the, the lane that he has to run in. You know, the news broke that McCarthy was dropping out of the speaker's race the day he was up here. And his reaction to it was, uh, was essentially two words. Nobody cares. In the country, nobody cares who the Speaker of the House is going to be. They don't care. Which is kind of a funny way of putting it when you're talking about who's going to become the next Speaker of the House. But his point was that, you know, no one, no real voter in America really cares, you know, who is in what position in Washington. And even though we all know that that actually does have a big effect on, on government, he's trying to position himself as an outsider, someone who says, look, Congress is just ineffective and it doesn't matter who gets to be speaker. Um, I think, you know, when you look at the sort of lane that he's running, as I mentioned, he's trying to take off moderate Republicans, independent voters, and disaffected Democrats. He's not going to take off, you know, the really staunch right-wingers that the Ben Carson's, Donald Trump's are really kind of dominating with right now, Ted Cruz. So that's sort of his path forward at this point. He crept up in the polls in New Hampshire, but ultimately, what do local voters think about him? And what would really make a difference for Chris Christie in New Hampshire? I think he's doing um, okay. I mean, look, he's he expected to get into this race being the frontrunner. I asked him, you know, is there some part of you that actually likes being the underdog and has an ability to sneak up on people? And he was like, no, you know, I'd much rather, <laughs> much rather be the frontrunner here and be running away with it. So he is not in the position that he or anyone thought that he would be in two years ago. Uh, Having said that, it is very early still. New Hampshire voters decide very late. Um, I think he needs another really strong debate performance or two. As we all know, the current environment requires you to make uh, a big splash in these debates in order to go anywhere. So he's going to have a couple more opportunities to do that over the next month, assuming that he gets onto the main stage, which he is sort of in danger of falling off of, um, according to the threshold that uh, CNBC has set for the next debate. So I think that's really important for him. You know, New Hampshire is not just, it's a small state. Everyone knows that, you know, speaking in people's living rooms and doing these town hall meetings is important. But that in and of itself is not enough to win here. He needs more money. He still needs that national standing. Um, So that's why I think the debates are really key for him. Are demographics changing in New Hampshire, and and could that uh, affect the primary this time around? Well, it's become a much more Democratic-leaning state. As far as demographic changes, you know, it's overwhelmingly white. Uh, It's one of the whitest states in the country. That's not changing. 
Um, there are a lot of veterans in the state, which, uh, again, to go back to McCain, that played a, a huge role, and that's not changing um, either. Uh, there are different regions where you would expect him to do better, and, that, and those places are really kind of more of the upper-scale parts of the state, I'd say, like Portsmouth and the Seacoast. Um, he has to really work on picking up those independent voters, and they're, and they're really everywhere. So for him, it's not really so much of, like, you know, divide and conquer as far as geographic areas of the state or anything like that. He's got to do well everywhere in order to succeed. Scott Conroy, senior political reporter with The Huffington Post. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Christie Tracker Podcast is a production of WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Joseph Capriglione and Richard Hake, Tracy Hunt, and Jim O'Grady for voicing the governor's message board postings. Our theme music is by 29-Hour Music People. You can subscribe to the Christie Tracker Podcast on iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. And you can follow Matt Katz at MattKatz00. That's Matt, K-A-T-Z. I'm David First, and we finish with a moment from a New Hampshire town hall where Governor Christie was invited to partake in a little karaoke. Hearing me sing may not be the thing that brings people, like, over the edge to supporting me, and that's got to be my first priority right now. So karaoke another time, though, but thank you for the invitation.